You're listening to The Mix Podcast, where we explore user behavior, emerging technologies, and how to design better digital experiences. We faked that we had built it completely and it worked and we published it online on a YouTube channel. And what happened is that people for the first time saw that we had, quote unquote, built flexible screens or 3D screens or contextually dependent user interfaces or something. And they, we were able to just create suspension of disbelief for two minutes. For two minutes, you actually thought we built it. And then when you realized, ah, ah, it was some prototype thing they faked. Oh, they tricked us really well there. Then you realized that you couldn't unsee it. Hi, I'm Marek Pawłowski, founder of Mex. That was Hampus Jakobsen. He was talking about those kind of crazy days shortly after the arrival of the iPhone had lit a fire under the mobile industry in the late 2000s. So I'm just back from MWC, the mobile industry's big annual showcase in Barcelona. And at a time when everyone is starting to talk about flexible screens and gestural interfaces as being the next big thing, it was kind of interesting to catch up with Hampus, someone who was there right at the beginning of when these things were first being seen as a possible future for mobile user experience. You know, I'm, I'm pretty lucky with this podcast. I get to talk to some fascinating people, people who have built companies, people who are breaking new ground, doing experience design in, in big organizations, people who are doing weird and wonderful and experimental things. But it's rare that I get to talk to someone where we manage to cover so many big ideas in such a short space of time as I did with Hampus. As you'll hear in the interview, I've known Hampus a good long while. Uh, It started when he was one of the co-founders of TAT, the Astonishing Tribe. Now, TAT played a pretty important role in the development of mobile interfaces. They had a platform which got adopted by lots of the big phone manufacturers for doing UI stuff that previously hadn't really been possible. But they were also pioneering designers in the true sense of the word. And as Hampus alluded to in that clip that you just heard, they didn't let little things like whether or not something could technically be done yet stand in the way of provoking the industry to think differently about user experience. So TAT grew to about 150 people or so. And then in 2010, kind of out of the blue, they got bought by BlackBerry. Now, Hampus explains what that was like and for him, how it kind of marked the start of something else. He started working with BlackBerry on their M&A activity, and he became a prolific angel investor himself, and he's now a partner at the VC firm Blue Yard. And he's almost back to doing what he does best, which to my mind seems to be looking out for what might come next and then helping companies to get there faster. So I'll be back at the end with some news for you about things like our next next dinner that we have coming up. But in the meantime... Hope you enjoy my chat with Hampus. Hampus.
Nicholas, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for taking the time to join me today. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. You know, I was looking back through some of our MEX archives before we got together to have this conversation, and you realize it's almost nine years ago to the day that I came out to see you guys when you were working at TAT, the Astonishing Tribe, in Malmo in Sweden. Yeah, it was a very long time ago. It feels like another life, honestly. Back then, you were part of the founding team, right? for TAT. Yeah, we were six founders, six friends actually, who originally started a company that was doing arts and uh, com- computer vision stuff and special effects for movies. And and then we like we were called by a friend asking us if he could help us doing user interface for mobile phones. And we thought that was a dead and dying industry because we had worked at a mobile gaming company back in 99. But to be frank, just to be nice to him, we said that like we think that you're in a shit job because mobile phones will never go anywhere, but we're happy to help you out, right? So we built a little prototype and then along came his super boss who like came in and looked at what we did and he just stared at us and he said, Wow, like how much like what's the license fee for this? And we just said like the biggest number we'd ever done in any customer projects. We just said, This is forty K Euros and he said, Oh, this is that's per phone model? <laughs> <laughs> and then we were just like standing there, deaf mute, going, yes, per phone model. We were like, what does that even mean? And he said, oh, then I guess you charge NRE on top. And we just said, yes. We were like, what does that mean? And he said, oh, that's great. I'll get back to you and like draft something. And we just like went on Wikipedia and looked up NRE. And we're like, oh, professional services. Like, wow, we get paid twice. So Sounds was, like a pretty good first client to have. It was a very good first client. And the funny thing is they were actually a super shitty client in how much they paid because we figured out the second and the third and the fourth client that we were charging peanuts. Uh, but it was so funny that, you know, if you come from a world where you've done arts, like m- working in a commercial world with a you know, big corporate, they are, it's a much better commercial, like, you know, deal, so to say. So I think that it was so great because we came in very idealistically that we wanted just to solve the problem. But then finally, somebody paid us to hire people and pay the bills and everything else. So it was amazing for us to stumble into that world. Okay, so I think we need to set the scene a little bit here as well. Um, So when you say that you were, I guess, hesitant or wary about the mobile phone industry at the time, what were we talking about here in terms of the state of technology in the world of mobile at this point? What were the, the products that were on the market and why did you feel like it wasn't really going? anywhere no so it's like the this is this this is 2001 and the state of mobile phones are text text based displays and we had actually worked the first company worked at there was a WAP game company so like our experience of experience like if you talk about user experience are essentially how like how deep are the menus the text based menus and do you have two row or three row displays of text and that's it and then what happened then is like Sony and Ericsson merged and Sony came in with a kind of a like a PlayStation mindset that they were talking about color screens and movie animations and stuff. But uh, Ericsson came from, yeah, we've built this microwave oven that now can call kind of mindset. So Ericsson was in panic mode because they now had to build like these experience devices. And yeah, we had been in computer arts for a long while as a hobby. So for us, it was like, yeah, we've always worked with shit technology because that's the thing if you work in arts as a hobby that you don't have, or if you're young, you don't have money to buy expensive stuff. So it was perfect for us. We just came in and said, sure, we can build something that moves around graphics. And the first phone that we worked on was the Sony Ericsson or 
T28 and then the Sony Ericsson T610, which was like the first phones that essentially had color displays that didn't look like crap. And this was like Nokia had just released their first phone on Symbian. So that was the first time you actually download apps. So for us, the big benefit was that we could actually build and prototype a lot of things without having to be in the phone manufacturer. So we bought this, trying to remember the Nokia phone's name, but 4620 or something, which was a phone where you could actually install an app so that we could actually build something that got to, you know, pretend that it was the operative system. Whereas just before, if you wanted to build an experience on a mobile phone, you had to be a mobile phone manufacturer or having a license with one of them. So it was completely impossible. And we were just standing there just at the, you know, somebody asked us to solve the problem kind of the same month that the first phone came that was possible for us to prototype it. So it was just as anything else. We were just at the right time at the right place. Well, sometimes it is all in the the, the timing with that kind of thing. But I'm, I'm curious there, you know, you, you say that you were in computer arts as a hobby. When did that start for you? Yeah, so Sweden and Scandinavia actually a lot has had this thing called the demo scene in since the end of the 80s, which is that people met in land parties where you didn't play games. You kind of showed that you could hack and make amazing th- things with a Commodore 64 and an Amiga and the early IBM's PCs. We kind of did that as a hobby in our late teens. So we were kind of late to the game in, you know, in the bigger perspective. There are a lot of very impressive companies in the Nordics that have actually were from the from the demo scene. Anybody from Supercell to many of the big Finnish companies actually were demo scene groups that were used to muster out magic from these very limited devices, but then stumble upon a business idea and build either like a, a benchmarking company or a small gaming company and that since they were the best people in the world to figure out how to make vivid, amazing graphics and animations, then of course their games looked really cool. Um, so we were exactly from that background. We just had hobby-wise trying like compete in this competition. And we've actually won a couple of gold medals and silver medals and stuff. So we were, uh, I wasn't the core of this team, but most of my co-founders actually were. So I came in late to that team as well. Uh, but like the group was kind of one of the leading ones in the Nordics, which of course was very beneficial because it was a quite of a big group. So the first recruitments were rather quote unquote easy. Like if you want to get like the 10 best, tw- 10 best developers who understand graphics processors, you know, in 2001, like we knew all of them. And of course we could recruit all of them because some of them had their own ideas, but a lot of them said, yeah, I'd love to work on that. That sounds super cool. And does that scene continue to this day? Is that something which is still very much active within the Nordics? It has merged and changed. Even if like during our times when we were active, it actually changed. So already in 2002, it changed. It became much more about gaming. Uh, it became all, like during the nineties, it became more about gaming. And the thing is like in the early days, it was a lot about gaming and then trading. So like, you know, uh, piracy and because like you, you know, there were no, in, no good internet so you met up and switched games and like copied stuff or music or videos or stuff but also then you played some games but then some people just said I don't want to play games so then you said hey I figured out this cool idea of how to make this graphical thing or this music thing so people make music uh, pixel art and also graphic programming and then that merged into competitions and then more and more gaming came along so I would say that the craziest thing is I think that I would guess there are the same number of people at these events nowadays that's code or make music but 99% of the people who are at the event play games so the big events are like Dreamhack or Assembly or one of those which are like they they rent ice hockey rinks huge things but 
95% of people sitting there, they're playing games today because games are so much more, quote-unquote, interesting. And also because, like, back in the 90s, the people who were, who were spending 10 hours in front of a computer, they were nerds. <laughs> Whereas today, people who spend 10 minutes in front of a computer, they're actually normal people nowadays. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. I guess it's starting to connect the dots for me slightly because I remember thinking when I came out to see you guys in Malmo, whenever it was, nine-odd years ago, as to just how much kind of depth there seemed to be to the tech scene, the creative scene within, you know, what is a relatively small geographic area and scratching my head and thinking, you know, how has this come about? Why is this particular region so strong in this? But it sounds like that was plugged in very much to a kind of a, a national scene there. And it's it's starting to make sense a little bit more now with the benefit of, of hindsight. But I guess we should, you know, move things forward a little bit and understand where that went to for you, because this in some ways was the platform on which what you have done since has, has been built. But yeah, TAT, or the Astonishing Tribe, as it was known, yeah, went on to have a pretty significant role within the mobile industry, and particularly in relation to how user experience evolved within the, the industry. When, when did you first get a sense that that was occurring, that that was um, actually going to come to play as significant a role as it did in shaping the way experience design was done in mobile? I, I would say that we very, very late came to the realization that we did anything useful, <laughs> because I think think that i mean this is like we started this end of 2001 beginning of 2002 uh which is like the world is like there's no tech crunch all i don't know maybe tech crunch existed but there's no kind of like startup media there's no kind of this kind of you know tech media essentially that you have stuff like mit press but you know that's like scientific uh publications and so there were the dots weren't connected the world was not very flat on this and so we were completely unaware we started working with son erickson then because we got some frustration of how uh, bureaucratic they were and slow they were which honestly most big companies were uh, we started working with with samsung samsung being swift and crazy we like sought some stability so we started working with nokia and Motorola, and you know we kept all these customers so, like every time like we suddenly then after four years we worked with all these four giants and i think around then we started to realize that this is you know around 2005 2006 i would say was the time when we realized we're we kind of know stuff about this this is not such a stupid idea and then 2000 and, and then like i think in 2006 we were actively trying to sell people to do stuff with us but this is still you know you don't have touch screens in the world and with this kind of technology that we've created graphics animation and stuff it's still just wasting battery power because, I mean, the bottleneck in that time was battery power. Uh, but the world completely changed in 2007 when the iPhone came out and just showed people that if you don't have good user experience, you just can't go home. And actually, battery power, who cares? Like, you can, you have to charge your phone every day. And that just opened up the world. Like, everybody just started calling us and saying, we want to work with you. And what also happened then is Android. Google called us and asked us to design Android for them. Uh, we started working with all these carriers. We started working with companies like Disney. Like all of these companies wanted to build a mobile phone. Some of them because of fear that Apple would kill them. And some of them because actually understanding that like this is actually an interesting business idea for us. Like we could go in and build these devices. And I think around then, I think was the time when we really, really got it. That we just felt, okay, we actually... Like we're we actually shaping the future of these devices quite significantly, and then what happened in 2010 is then BlackBerry came out of nowhere and and we didn't have it as a customer, uh, we didn't know have any relationship with them. They came out of nowhere and said we would like to acquire you, and we just didn't believe it at first. We were like, why would you want to acquire us? We we're building a company. What do you mean acquire? And they just said we need exactly like what you have. We need we need a new modern, lean, design-driven, user-first culture. 
We need uh, um, new operative systems, so new graphics rendering, new ways of working, and we actually need enormous amount of people who understands user experience. And we just said, well, that's that's us. <laughs> that those three are us, so that's okay. And then they said, yeah, we'd like to buy you for 150 million dollars in cash. And we were just sitting there like, what? That's just crazy money, right? Like, and we didn't have investors because we had just built our company as a you know pet project that spun out of control, and then we were become uninvestable because of that, and never sought kind of to raise money for real we had a stint when we looked into it but we were just not fit for that uh, or understood the world then so like for us being acquired by blackberry was super interesting and uh, not only economically but also we suddenly became a mobile manufacturer and had to understand all the limitations they had but also we actually for once actually had the opportunity to decide how we wanted to do st- th- things not only like advise and help these companies or be the one digging the trenches, but we were the ones suddenly could call in the shots. And got to work with Don Lindsay, who was one of the key designers between OS X and uh, Vista and and then BlackBerry OS, and that whole team, which was very impressive, who was super good design directors and very intelligent people and great leaders. And I I moved out of the scene then. Like I, I started working when I joined BlackBerry 2010, I worked with MA. So I ended up looking at acquiring companies so why did you make that choice because you know up until then i guess you'd always at least had a a role and influence on the design direction at tat um why focus on mna at that point i think that i am i'm just i really love process i i i love process and i love uh things i mean i think just the world is just too slow I'm the guy that listens to podcasts at 1.75 x speed i just enjoy stuff being fast so for me like Designing a good UI is just like, it feels like ironing an infinitely large shirt. I just, I, I, you know, I iron for five minutes and after a while I go like, okay, now it's just more of the shirt. Like, oh my God. And then you have the cuffs and then you have the, oh my God, I don't want to do this. But I kind of, you know, being in that world in the beginning, of course, I had to do everything like with my co-founders and then I have opinions about everything. So of course I had strong opinions, but I've always been the person who... I want to be part of the steep learning curve. And as soon as I feel that it's not as steep anymore, then I, I just feel I want to go somewhere else. So I'm I'm an expert at nothing, literally nothing. I, I know I know a lot about lots of things, but I, I am not absolutely nobody at almost everything as well. So MA so was a chance to learn something new for you? I think MA was almost like a perfect thing. So I think there are certain things that you really require the kind of person I am. So I'm innately curious and and I have no and I and I in, in curious and very intense and um, and want the world to go faster, which means that in the world of investment or M&A is perfect. Because if, if I meet a company today that does like fusion technology or carbon capture or nanotubes or, you know, mRNA technology, I have to, in two hours, understand and prepare this meeting so that I can actually figure out if these people know what they're doing. And the thing is, after two hours, you know what, like I figured out a way to kind of know enough that I can figure out if these people are bullshitting or not. And then figuring out how to know if like, you know, invest in them or not or buy them or not. So I think that's exactly what I'm built to do. And I think that that skill was the one where I felt that at at BlackBerry, where I felt that here I joined as a leader for the, you know, the engineering or design team. And I felt that I'm going to be very quickly bored. What saved me at building TAT was that it was just constantly new challenges. Like we doubled size as a company, we doubled every year. And if you double, like the first year, the problem is, you know, sales. The second year, the problem was recruitment. The third year, the problem was, oh, heck, we're big. Communication, internal structure, you know, the fourth year is like leadership. The fifth year is, you know, like there was just every year, it was a new problem. 
Like so it was when you think back to you know what TAT and I guess that team, regardless of, of when it was independent or when it then became part of BlackBerry, managed to achieve in terms of like a tangible contribution to the the state of tech, as it were. What's the part that you're proudest of when you look back at that time? Was it what you went on to do on the BlackBerry 10 platform or, or was it some of the individual projects that you did in the run up to that? I think that what I am, I mean, I think that there, there are different lenses you can look at that. There are, I think that one way of looking at it is what one thing personally I just felt I contribute to, right? Um, that's, that's one thing. Uh, another thing is of course, which are, you know, dear to me contextually because I was part of it, which is fun. Another thing is we're part where they're still alive. The, the, comp- the, um, the user interface is still alive and, you know, it works and everything. That's, of course, another thing. But I think that if you look at it, I think that there's a third lens, which are things that were pivotal for the industry, which is like we did this thing and that actually it changed the way people saw stuff. Uh, and I think those three are very different lenses. And I think that the thing in the second category, things are still around is which also I was part of shaping is I was at Android helping designing the user interface of Android when I actually did, I actually had to do design again, like leading that design team till we got the person leading it. And it was amazing because I thought it was so fun in the beginning, just thinking about like notifications, for example, like how do we build notifications? systems and menus and one of my dear friends uh was the main designer for the like the curtain design which all mobile phones more or less have today like you pull from the up of the phone and like up down comes all the notifications the phone has and he designed that and uh, like i thought it was super fun because we were just three people in the beginning on android designing the whole ui so it was amazing to see first of all that like that that pixel is mine most of the pixels are not mine but then also it's like that's still around you know like when I pick up a mobile phone today and swipe it or do something, I, I wow, that's it's still alive. That's kind of cool. The other thing I think is we did a YouTube channel called TAT Mobile UI where we did a big innovation on the fact that we felt lots of frustration that people were not designing the user interfaces we wanted them to design for many, many reasons. Technical limitations, but also just like risk. People didn't want to create new stuff. So what we did is that we designed a completely new user interface or paradigm or, or something and then we faked that we had built it completely and it worked and we published it online on a YouTube channel. And what happened is that people for the first time saw that we had, quote unquote, built flexible screens or 3D screens or contextually dependent user faces or something. And they, we were able to just create suspension of disbelief for two minutes. For two minutes, you actually thought we built it. And then when you realized, ah, ah, it was some prototype thing they faked. Oh, they tricked us really well there. Then you realize that you couldn't unsee it. And for me, I feel that that was kind of what, you know, the Jules Verne's of the time did. They said, why don't we travel to the moon? Or why don't we build submarines? And Jules Verne was a crazy person. But I can say that most people grew up... And one like who read those books wanted to do that, just like you know science fiction in the like the Jetsons and and those guys cr- like created the belief that we're going to have flying cars, uh, and I think that I'm very very proud and also very happy to have been part of just seeing that we could have we changed so many people's beliefs that then they they then actually created those experiences. Well, there's a role for that kind of provocation, I think, regardless of whether you're using sleight of hand magic tricks to make it happen or whether you have actually built it. If it's something which inspires the rest of the industry to try harder and to try new things. And to my mind at the moment, 
that's something which I think is missing, not just in the area of, of mobiles and smartphones, but I think throughout digital industry, there's maybe not enough in the way of experimentation that's happening around truly groundbreaking user interfaces. And perhaps we're just in a period of a, a lull while that is happening, or perhaps there are things going on which uh, I'm not aware of. But I'm curious, given that you've had that experience at that time when a lot was changing within the world of, of mobile, What's your take on that? You know, are there places that you're looking at the moment and you're seeing that kind of new blood coming through, you know, those new inspirations which are pushing people to do things with interfaces in the the digital world? Yeah, absolutely. I think that I think that there are plenty of things happening in especially in AR and VR that I, I'm, I'm not a big fan of AR and VR. I can tell you, I, I think that there are, most of them are very toyish. People come up with a very, very contrived interface and interaction paradigm where you're suddenly standing in a globe and the people who designed it have no sense of ergonomics and understand that you do not want to kind of be uh, a superhero swiping on this like big ass four, four meter high, 10 meters wide screen in minority reports. Like you would never want to do that. You would have shoulder pains after a half a day. But what I like about those movies and especially games is they just come up with a, a, a complete, a thing that we've haven't never thought about before. And when we see it, we can't unsee it. And I think there are, there are both AR games and uh, VR games. That I think they're very interesting, but also I think that. I mean, I think obviously like Pokemon Go have, have, have created a whole world of people realizing that geo, like geolocation uh, can get a lens on top of it. But also I think there are, there are amazing prototypes where people have made these interfaces and losing the guy's name now. But there's this amazing guy at Google that has done user interfaces, AR user interfaces, where from one of my favorites is that he hovers above um, currency like bills. And uh, it shows what it's worth in your local currency, and then you can and you can click it or hover it, and it says it if you have uh, like if you're blind or have uh, any kind of uh, vision uh, impairment. And it's one of those things which is like you just want like a remote control that you can point at something and just like tell me what this is. And I think that we're seeing that connection more and more. I think also through uh, like connecting to other devices, but they're still lacking the user interface component. I think it's so strange that. For example, NFT and like pairing with devices, that still is, there's nobody, it feels that people haven't thought about it from the human, like how do you actually want to say hello to your device and and like, you know, get them to quote unquote handshake. It's so much like driven from a technological kind of hold the sensor here. And I think there's so much room. And I think most of those come from arts, games, and experiments. Yeah, that's that's a good point. I think the the particularly the world of gaming. I mean, thinking about some of the people I've spoken to on this podcast, uh, there's a guy called Tim Burrell Sword who works for Sensible Object. Uh, now they're working on a hybrid game that uses physical models and then also digital interactions on a companion iPad to create an overall gaming experience and. I think one of the reasons why they've managed to come up with such interesting mechanics for that is because fun had to be central to it. They didn't mm. lose sight of that notion that for something to become habitual for people in the way they use a user interface, it has to have an element of fun there to be engaging. You know, that's what gets people to connect with the idea and for people to build a, a habit around it. And without that, I think it's always going to be difficult to, to make it stick. Yeah, but I also think that, for example, I think that uh, there are so many things that are so close that people don't think about as UI technologies. For example, I think that, for example, deep fakes, when we're able to kind of, you know, replace faces or generate stuff, 
I think those could probably be used for super just interesting um, user interface things that we just haven't thought about today that would just help us like look at the world differently. And I think what's also super fascinating is also the people, for example, I don't know if you've seen, for example, the plugin Funkify, a Chrome extension that just like gets you to look at a web page through the eyes of uh, dyslexia or uh, tunnel vision or colorblindness or something, which is like forces us to see the POW, POV from somebody else. Like we, we have to suddenly look at this and realize, oh, this is how this UI looks. I don't know how many times at CAT, the biggest value we came in with was the fact that we knew that a good user interface can be interactive with it, even if you kind of keep your hand, keep your phone like at arm's length. And you're, you're kind of, uh, you know, kind of crossing your eyes a bit and looking at it purely. And then you ask yourself, like, what's the biggest button you want to click? And then we saw so many people coming from the print industry. And the print industry is an industry where, like, you can hold the magazine closer to your face. And, you know, you, you have plenty of time and nothing's clickable. And, and I think that, like, we came in with, like, just like a slightly different mindset. And that helped. And I think we're going to see that from, from like anything from like games to deep fakes to AR, where people just come in. I think that, for example, I just get so angry looking at stuff that, like, look at, for example, Gmail on mobile. Just like example, like I think that most one of the most prolific product out there. Everybody with Android device has them. Lots of people with with um, uh, iPhones have them. And now I know, like, some people would just say, "Oh, not that example again." But if you like, they just killed. Just like in October last year, they killed Inbox. And the thing is, Inbox was a high contrast product. Like black was black, white was white, yada, yada, yada. And I know not white, not black, but you know, close enough for jazz. The thing is with Gmail, it's not. Gmail is a low contrast product. It's like the user interface is much more, quote unquote, aesthetical and much, much harder to navigate. And it's one of those things that I just ask, like, why do people care so much about aesthetics when the product becomes harder to use? So what are the skills that you think designers should be investing in for the future to be better at achieving that sort of thing? Is this something where we need to pay more attention to, I guess, people who have experience with what would traditionally be considered accessibility issues? Uh, Or is this something which needs an additional layer of experimentation, which comes from outside of, of what we have within digital design at the moment? I think all the skills are there. I don't think it's anything new. I think that I think the biggest problem is just home blindness. That like when you when when I'm designing a user interface, I just believe that everybody is like me, right? I mean, for example, when I do a podcast, like when I record a podcast myself, my my podcasts are 50 minutes long, and both me and the other person speaks at like extraordinary speed because I just believe that everybody wants like in-depth knowledge, and they have 50 minutes to spend, and uh, you know they they don't want to wait to get new interesting information. But I would say almost everybody who I get feedback from saying, couldn't you make them shorter? And why do you have to speak that fast? And I think that it's just like we just the biggest problem of designing user interfaces is that we just believe that everybody is us. And I think that's the tricky thing. I think that and the other thing I think we have is that when we understood that there are other people in the world, I think the problem is then we start designing a product for everybody. And I think that's that's really hard too, because a product for everybody is almost a product for nobody. So I think that's the other problem is like I don't like I wish that more people design products and variants of products. Like what if you design like Gmail, Gmail for basic, Gmail for hard, Gmail for advanced, Gmail for stressed, whatever. I'm just making stuff up here. But as you did, then suddenly you could kind of tweak it. And I think the tweaks we have right now are do you want how big do you want the font to be? And I think that there I think there's just so many ways we can do to create a product that would just have different viewpoints on what the goal is. It's it's at the end of the day, it's jobs to be done. Like what is the job to be done with this product? And not, not, it's probably not your job to be done. It's probably someone else's job. And I think that's the tricky thing. Perhaps a, a call for 
greater modularization in the way these things are designed to allow that kind of variation, that kind of customization. There is that danger that, as you say, once you start to get to just a, a homogenous offering, it becomes something which is just not very well suited to the needs of anyone. And, you know, no one wants to get to that point. But uh, I'm also conscious that despite having that grounding experience in the world of, of mobile, where you've gone with that has taken you at some points, I imagine, quite far from where you probably imagined you would be when you were buried in that world of mobile experience design. I mean, now you're spending a fair amount of your time in the world of venture capital. Um, mm. How different are the challenges that you're taking on there from what you are familiar with in the world of mobile experience? I, I would say extre- extremely different. Uh, I think from just many parts. I think that I think a big difference is that when you design experiences, I think that you have to. I mean, I think it, it's a it's a craft. So it's a craft where you try to create a premium, easy to use, pleasurable product for somebody. So that means it's lots of time spent understanding the user, understanding the use case, and actually just ironing that shirt, you know, making it really, really working for that use case. Whereas I think the world of venture capital is almost a world of horse betting. It's like you have you come in and you try to very, very fi- quickly figure out if to spend your time on this or not. Because the problem is when you're in the industry of giving money, <laughs> not giving, but you know what I mean, the thing is everybody wants to talk to you. So there are just a massive amount of, of uh, false positives. There are just so many people who say they, they have it and they don't. And your job becomes filtering those to the people who have it. And there are just so many things that you have to understand there. So I think almost the only overlapping skill is understanding people. And I think that in the UI world, usually you have lots of time to think about who the user and what the use case is. Still, we don't do it enough, right? But we at least try. Whereas in the investment world, it's a split second thing. And so you just have to go, I think this is a super shitty leader. I would never want to work for him or her. And I think you might be just as blind when you're an investor as when you're a designer or vice versa. But that's the only overlapping skill. There, there's just so many other components. At the end of the day, what I'm fascinated about is, and I, I, I am obsessed about how people work, and I mean like work as a mechanical duck kind of work. Like I don't understand like the inner parts of a person. Why do they do what they do? And that is very useful when you design user interfaces because I want to figure out when you chat to somebody or email why, uh, and what do you want? And when I meet the startup who says we're raising five million dollars to do X Y Z. I ask what and why. So that's very similar. But the modus operandi and the pace is very different. And are you applying different filters depending on whether this is something that you're looking at as an angel investment versus whether it's an investment that you're looking at on behalf of Blue Yard, the VC firm that you're affiliated with? So I would say slightly different, So, but not that different. So the thing is, what I look at as an angel is I look at things that can become investable for a VC in you know six to eighteen months, and in Blue I look at those companies that have become that. So I think that that's the uh, like that's the you no know, the, the similar, but of course just another stage. But another thing is Blue is a is a thesis driven firm. So me as like me as in like an angel, I can literally invest in something that does. Like one company invested in does uh, really high-end luxurious clothing for women sewn by female prisoners that have been incarcerated for like for life, but for crimes that that are like in the bigger part of the world viewed as very 
unjust, like drug deals, for example. Um, so like think about like a Peruvian 18 year old girl needs to get out of her situation and provide for a family. So she becomes a drug mule and she gets incarcerated for life. And now she's creating these amazing high quality clothes and actually getting well paid uh, to make these super impressive clothing that are bought by mostly wealthy women in the West. That company is not a blue red company because VCs would just look at it and go, mm, that can never scale. It's great. It does impact. It's interesting. It's like intellectually interesting. But how does it scale? Whereas me as an angel, I can say I, it doesn't need to scale. Like I, I'm fine with this amazing thing. Uh, but then, there, of course, there is an overlap. Like when when people show me things that change the way internet works or sucks carbon out of the atmosphere, then like both Bjorn and I, both both parts of my brains there, there they they light up. Now, what are you not seeing? You obviously get a lot of these deals and approaches come across your desk every day. But are there gaps? Are there places where you wish you were seeing more innovation happening and more companies looking for investment? I mean, I still find that I feel still find that the global sustainability goals that I just wish that there's more companies thinking about that. And I think that there there are lots of ways to approach them. There are quote unquote, very easy ones, which are essentially about digitalization and communication technologies, like the way we invented anything from intercom to Zendesk to Slack, but applied to a way of communication, communicating, you know, weather or female fertility or something, which is, it's not a hard, hard problem, but it's, it's a last mile problem. Like, how do you get the technology to work on extreme low end device and how do you get those people to find it and maybe monetization? Then the second category, like when you go up like one step in complexity or companies when you suddenly go like deep science, like, okay, we need to suck carbon out of the atmosphere or we need to create fusion technologies or something like that where the complexity becomes a scientific complexity where the last mile is usually like, does it work to 90% or to 100%? Because a lot of the things we have invented in lab or, or on paper, they work to 90% degree. But the problem is, like, that's not enough. Like, if you put it to work, if it degrades quickly, or if it does only provide 90% of the what you need, well, it won't work. It won't work, sadly, at, at scale. So that's, like, when the last mile is a scientific last mile, when science needs to become engineering. And then the third the most complex ones are the ones where we're actually battling social structures, for example, inequality, where maybe we're talking about wealth inequality or uh, gender inequality or race inequality, where the problem is like we actually have to update our views about the world. And then you have all these projects that are doing anything from how do you get you know, Chinese people to communicate and talk about what they want, even if they're against the Chinese government, or how do you... Uh, create a freer internet without creating more, you know, piracy and and maybe um, and maybe terrorism. And I think that that's when like the it's the second and third degree problems that you actually are working with. So it's not hard to build a technology. It's the hard part is that if it works, you might actually destroy some the thing you actually wanted to create. So then this becomes much more of a, of a hard forecasting problem. And can you imagine your role ever changing from being, I guess, a, a VC or a, a curator of those things, an enabler of those things, to going back to something similar to what you did 
before where you were active day to day in the building of one specific company for a period of time? Or do you think you'll always remain the investor going forward? So the short answer is no. And the reason is because I think I spend my time split into three different categories of things. The first category is investment that we plot plenty about. And I think that it gives me enormous intellectual stimulus. Like I get to understand things that I wouldn't dream of even thinking about just 15 minutes before I went into the thing. Somebody said something that was like, were well, we talking about Fusion 2020? Like Fusion 2020, not like Fusion, you know, on space stations in 2100. It's like, this is real. And like, that is amazing to sit in those meetings and just under, like update my scientific view about the world and, you know, what we can do. And meeting these extremely ambitious people too is just extremely... Yeah, it's amazing for me. And especially like, as I said, I want, I just want, I want to put the world on 1.75x speed and being an investor is that. It's amazing. The second part of my life is that um, I start stuff. I start play, still, still start plenty of projects, but I'm an instigator. So I started the local tech ecosystem here in, in my city I live in. I started in a, a very impressive, uh, I, 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 very impressive, not my, not because of me, but because of the people who joined it and started it. A uh, very impressive accelerator that is a very ambitious accelerator called Fast Track um, here in, uh, in Sweden. I started uh, prototyping life for the city here that prototypes a civic lab. They prototype how cities should be run in the future, but very practically. They're not like some kind of Google sidewalk project where they like build a new city. They're very practically pragmatic look at the city. And and I think those projects, like I, I, I start them, semi-start them, sketch them out. I get the first funding. I find the first people maybe, or my co-founder, and then I become an advisor or even leave completely. And those projects are kind of my outlet for wanting to solve a problem, which is like why I... Like usually want to start project companies. I wanted to solve a product that frustrated me. And then the third part of my life are around creativity, where I want to play with a thing and noodle with it. I want to get good at the craft. And that's when I make podcasts. That's when I blog. I'm quite an active blog. That's like when I cook. I do a lot of things where I just want to experiment with somebody and I don't want it to scale. I don't care. I just want to play with this thing. Uh, and I think those three are very distinct. And I actually found that together with just being a human like you know i have three kids a wife and i think that those four they it sounds crazy when i'm saying it but those four become an amazing harmony in my life because i find i find purpose i find engagement uh, and i find myself thanks to that i have all of these four parts because otherwise i would be frustrated in in one of these i would feel that i wasn't part of something bigger or i felt that i wouldn't apply my skills in a good direction, or I wouldn't find peace. But thanks to I have these four, somehow it balances out. It sounds like you could be on the threshold of needing to turn that dial up from 1.75x to 2x, you know, with the amount of stuff you, you've got going on. But I'm also conscious of time um, with this, Hampus. And there was one last thing that I wanted to ask you about, which was relating to one of those categories that you just mentioned. So you started a new podcast recently, which I'm very curious about, because you're doing something which has been much on my mind recently as well. What's the podcast? And what's the goal with it? Yeah, so the podcast is called Full Worlds. And the reason is, I, so it's, a, it's an ethnography podcast investigating the world that science fiction authors built. And the reason is, I, I'm an avid reader. I just love reading. Uh, most, I, most today, mostly now I read, I read fiction, but I do read other things than fiction as well. But I found that the short version of it is that I find that there are four kinds of books. Escapism books that tries to get away from where we are and who we are. 
they're the make us comfortable books that just want us to like you know it's like opening a book of a author you read a lot about or like you have a fantasy novel where you just feel comfortable and you know the narrative and the archetypes the third kind of books are the ones that puts it in minds of other people and other points of views being another gender you know being uh, some other way of being which i think are great as as becoming humble and understand other people but then the fourth kind of book are the fourth are the fourth kind of people that gives us a new way to see the world and what i I think is interesting about science fiction books is that science fiction when you open a science fiction book you're forced to become to be curious and open-minded you don't know how the economy works you don't know how the hierarchies works you don't even know how the planet works for god's sake which means that we're forced into this state of open-mindedness and as a reader i think it's interesting and i think what we usually have been focused on are the writers where they have explored a world and what i wanted to do with this new podcast full worlds is i wanted to suck out and distill the world without the story without the characters and i just wanted to give people this is this full world of everything the author thought about of you know taboos and hierarchies or whatever or economy and let's just look at our world through that lens yeah it's a fascinating capability to have as an author i think and actually it strikes me that there's really a very thin line between the kind of things that those authors are doing and being able to have the empathy to imagine a world and its people and the way in which those people interact and think and actually what people are doing day to day in the world of digital experience design at the moment you know at its best you're employing those same skills of empathy and understanding and being able to create systems which have a meaning in a wider world that those science fiction authors are doing. I think there's there's a lot that can be learned between those two worlds. Yeah, and I think that almost science fiction authors are like, as we talked about new kinds of designing games, like um, if people create AR games or AR user interfaces or like, you know, gaming user interfaces that play and stretch our minds to what, what, what UIs could be, I think science fiction authors are kind of the same. They don't have to think about usability. They don't have to think about the edge cases. They can just go, okay, whatever. There's no, there's no scarcity. We can just do whatever we want. And let's just imagine this world. And I think that the interesting thing about that is like in the real world, it's not like that, right? Like we, some parts of the planet has a post-scarcity world, but some parts absolutely don't. But I think what's interesting about science fiction authors is they allow us to glimpse into one kind of world where we all might land, or uh, as we have seen in quotes, the future is here, it's just uneven administrated. It might be that it's already here. Like it might be that some part of the world is experiencing this already. And I think that's what I think is interesting about science fiction. Well, I'm going to add it to my podcast queue. Uh, Hampus, Thank you very much for taking the time to come on the show and share all of this today. You're going to have to let me know what this episode sounds like at 1.75x when you play it back. But it's been a real pleasure to catch up with you today. Thanks a lot, Mark. It's been great. So you remember how I said at the beginning, I couldn't remember the last time I covered so much in a pretty short space of time. Well, there you go. That That is Hampus, power walking towards the future at 1.75x in his own words. Now, as those of you who have been listening for a while will know, this podcast is really one part of a, a much bigger thing, the MEX initiative for digital experience design. And one of the other things that we do is a, a dining club. This is where people who listen to the show have been guests on the show, have been involved with things like our conferences can come together every couple of months and have a good old chat about design and digital over a nice dinner. The next one is in London. It's on the 26th of March, Tuesday at 6.30pm. And if you'd like an invitation to that, just drop me a line. 
Uh, and don't worry if you've not been along to a mechs thing before. Kind of the whole point of these things is to meet some new faces. So just drop me an email at designtalk at mobileuserexperience.com and I'll send you over all of the details. You'll find the show notes for this episode, and it's a pretty bumper edition this time, given how much Hampus and I had to talk about uh, at mobileuserexperience.com in the podcast section. Uh, and while you're there checking them out, do please share the podcast with your friends. Have a think about who you know who might enjoy having a listen and just send them the link. I'll be back soon with a new episode. But for now, thanks for listening. Goodbye.